Let me add my happy Easter. Has anyone done an Easter egg hunt already this morning? Yeah, it's not just our family then. That's good. Um, Great. Can we have the PowerPoint up, please? That'd be really helpful. And um, let me just add to what Keith said about that church family meeting on the 3rd of May. Uh, Really would love all church members to be there. If you are not a member officially of OCC, but uh, have been part of the church here um, for a while, then please do come along as well. It's not that it's exclusive, just we really do want church members to come, and then others are welcome to come along as well and be part of that. So Easter Day, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it great? Yeah, there's a little bit. Of, see, I'm assuming that the um, the life of God in us, the resurrection life, the the, uh, the scriptures say that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in us. Therefore, if you're in Christ this morning, there's a kind of Easterness inside of you. Yeah, And when we think about the resurrection, it's like it resonates with something inside of us. So I'm thinking it's a good morning. Okay, we might have to warm up a little bit further here. That's okay. So it's all about newness. In Romans 6 and verse 4, it says, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that we too might walk in newness of life. The newness that there was there in Jesus coming alive again, rising from the dead, is meant to make a difference to our lives. There's a newness that we can walk in, springing up day by day, because of what happened on that first Easter Sunday morning. Could we have the next slide, please? just want to say, that is why... Ooh. We'll get there. There we go. That's why Marks and Spencers needs to be um, told off or something for their TV advert. Because if you've seen their TV advert, well, they're selling Easter eggs and then saying, if you don't fancy an Easter egg, just get a Percy Pig for Easter instead. Just want to say that won't do. Uh, it won't. Um, even if it has got Percy Pig flavour, whatever that may be. Um, does that mean anything to anyone? Oh, it does. Oh, right, okay. Confession time. Percy pig flavour means something to some of you. On the right-hand side, this is an ostrich egg hanging in a Coptic church. The Copts are a significant minority in Egypt who have a tradition of uh, Christianity that goes back right to the uh, first century. In their churches, they hang ostrich eggs. And uh, the reason for doing that is there's a constant reminder of the resurrection. Because out of an egg comes a new life in the form of a chick. Or occasionally a crocodile, I suppose. Um, Or some other kind of life. Sorry, too much biology there going on. And uh, anyway, they choose ostrich eggs because they're big and you can see them. The thing about eggs is they hold with them a promise of new life. And so they stick them there, hang them up in their church buildings as a reminder that in Christ there is new life made available through the resurrection. That's why it's good to have eggs at Easter. It reminds us of something. Hopefully it's not just about the chocolate, uh, that's quite good. Uh, It's about new life. I'm going to read this morning from Luke chapter 24, another bit of the story of the resurrection on Easter Day. We're going to read it in chunks, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 12. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they'd prepared and went to the tomb. 
they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were, they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb... They told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. On this Easter morning then, the stone that had covered the entrance to the tomb was rolled away. The body was gone, and the body was never found. Despite huge political motive to find the body, it was never found, because Jesus had risen from the dead. And you know, the resurrection proves that Jesus' death was not in vain. You know, when Jesus died, he looked like a ripe failure. And because today we primarily see the cross as a sign of salvation, it's a kind of positive thing for us that we can quite enjoyably dress with flowers, we don't immediately see what was obvious in the first century, that anyone who was crucified was a complete failure. Crucifixion was what the Romans did to those who stood against them politically, those that they saw as seditious. They put on crosses and they slowly died there on display for all to see so that everybody could see where power really lay that it didn't lie in rebellion or with any of Rome's political opponents, but with the Roman Empire. Anyone who was crucified was a criminal under Roman law. And for the Jews, anyone who was crucified was, by definition, a moral failure. Because the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 21 says anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And cursing in the law of Moses, followed from moral failure, from those who did things wrong. They were the ones who were cursed. Anyone who was hung on a tree was cursed. It makes sense of what was called out to Jesus by those who came to mock him as he died, as they said, look, he hasn't even got power to save himself. They looked at him on the cross, and what they saw clearly was that for Jesus to be there, He must be really powerless and a failure on every front. Not so obvious to us today. I wonder what it would take for us to understand just the apparent folly of a crucified saviour. In an age 
that we live in that adores, amongst other things, health, wealth, sexuality, and youth. Now, perhaps for us to get our heads around this, we need to see it's as if Jesus was a, a eunuch with learning difficulties, maybe even someone who'd been chemically castrated with learning difficulties, now old and senile and dying in the dark corner of a strip club. Like the complete antithesis of everything in which our society places value and honour, Jesus took that place of being seen as cursed. In fact, truly being cursed. And if the resurrection had never happened, we'd be left wondering that. Jesus' history would be a record of seeming failure. What the resurrection does is it shows that after all, Jesus is not weak and powerless, but actually has power over even the greatest enemy of humanity, that is death. Now, miracles are funny things. Um, You don't always notice miracles. And, I have observed, they can normally be explained away. Um, In real life, miracles are not at all like they are in Hollywood or how they seem in fairy stories where everyone gets to see them. The first healing in answer to prayer that I ever witnessed was a friend of mine called Josh, Josh Evans. He'd been working as a builder and in working as a builder, he, but we could go on to the next slide by the way. That's just to make a point clear and here we are with a new reality. See, in this new reality, miracles do happen. And uh, this friend of mine, he'd been working as a builder, and on account of all the kneeling that he'd been doing, he got what would have once been called housemaid's knee. It's now called uh, just water on the knee. I mean, you know, the fluid had swelled up in his knees as a sort of defensive response to all this pressure, and that was causing him pain. And I was with a friend, and we both prayed for him and did that thing that we Christians do in um, following the example of the early church. We put our hands on him a sign of solidarity with him in our prayer and I had my hand on his shoulder and my older more mature friend had his hand on his knee and as we prayed he was like whoa that's really strange it's going down and uh, under his hand the swelling went or the fluid went down and he was healed first uh, proper healing in answer to prayer that I'd ever seen but you know what um There's a lot of room for doubt there, isn't there? I mean, he told me that his knee was bad. I hadn't felt the pain myself. Someone told me that they'd felt it reduce in size. I hadn't felt it for myself. It hadn't been me. And yet, um, at the end of the day, he had been limping, and now he was better. So there's room for doubt, and yet the reality is clear. There's a reason why God does miracles very, very often in this way that leaves room for doubt. It's because he's not a show-off. You know, Jesus was tempted to jump from the top of the temple down into the courtyard, land gracefully, and prove to everyone in the centre of political power and religious power in his nation uh, who he was. That was a temptation to him. 
Because miracles are done not in order to wow people with wonders, but God acts out of love for people. And more often than not, the person who is benefiting doesn't need to be in the middle of a stage where others can see them, but simply to receive the love of God for themselves. What that means in practice, is that only a few people get to see what happens, and then everyone else gets to hear about it. It all follows from the way that God works, and the way that he wants to show his love, rather than just to show off. So that's the normal practice with miracles, that a few people get to see it, and most of the people get to hear about it. That's what we've got going on in this story here, isn't it? A few go to the tomb... Many hear the story, but to them, you know what? It sounded like nonsense. It didn't sound like the best story ever told. They frankly did not believe the women that brought the first uh, report of it. The uh, philosopher David Hume was alive in the 18th century, one of the, uh, if you want to, uh, British empiricists who laid the foundations of the modern philosophy of science, and he argued that if someone reported a miracle to him, it would never make sense to believe it. Because he argued that the laws of nature are reliable and consistent, and that people are not. And therefore, reports of miracles are always more likely to be the result of human delusion or deceit than generally to be true. You understand his argument? There's two problems with this argument that I can see. Uh, You may see others. One problem is, of course, that it's circular. It defines a miracle as something really unlikely to happen and then says that the report of it is really unlikely. So that's not very good logic. Uh, Secondly, of course, there's another problem with it, which is that it's wrong. I mean, and it makes wrong judgments about events that have occurred. Uh, Statisticians... Uh, call this type, a type 2 error. There are two kinds of errors that you can make in statistics. One is when you crunch your numbers to make it, to, to come up with a conclusion that something's going on in your experiment when there isn't really anything going on. There's another kind of error which statisticians try to avoid, which is to conclude that nothing's going on when really there was something going on. Hume's argument about miracles makes a type 2 error. It tends to assume that there are no miracles rather than judge them on the evidence and therefore will inevitably miss miracles that genuinely occur. Am I making sense? Yeah, some. Good. Um, The truth is that Jesus rose from the dead and one person after another has experienced the risen Christ from that day until this. It's clear and beyond a shadow of a doubt from the testimony of the churches of the church of Christ down the years that he is alive and well and revealing himself to his people. When I was in the Egyptian desert some years ago, at a Coptic monastery, so we have a bit of a Coptic theme this morning, I met there someone who had been a Muslim and had himself become a believer in Jesus. And he had a real love for uh, friends of his, uh, other Muslims, who he thought could really benefit from discovering the, what he had found, this new life in Christ. So he spent ages studying the Bible, 
And then he decided that there's no point doing things by half measure. This guy's name was John that I spoke to. He went and found, he knew there was a place where some Islamists hung out. These were guys who uh, were up for uh, being violent in their pursuit of Islam, not your typical Egyptians, but present within Egyptian society. And he went to go find them and sat down and opened his New Testament, the Injil, as the, uh, as the Muslims call it, and started trying to talk to them about what he'd discovered. Uh, the group of Islamists as a whole looked at him with a certain amount of pity, feeling that his arguments were not very strong, and delegated one of their number to rebuke him, which he did fairly effectively, pointing out to him how John's arguments made no sense and were uh, undone by other parts of the New Testament. But what began was a weekly meeting between John and this new uh, friend, actually, that he made. And they met week in, week out, and argued about what their scriptures said. They did that for three years. In all of that time, the Muslim friend won. His knowledge of the scriptures was far superior, and John was getting discouraged whilst being pers- whilst persevering in his attempts to make known what he had discovered. And then one day, well, actually one night, in the night, he got a phone call from his friend saying, I've just had a dream. And I love this, because this is, this is a story of God revealing himself and doing so within a culture and a way in which things make sense to people. He said, I had a dream, and in this dream, I was surrounded by fire, and this fire was going to consume me, and I knew that I needed saving from the fire, and uh, Mercedes-Benz with tinted windows drew up. And uh, and the door opened, and out came a figure that I recognized to be Jesus, and Jesus said, do you want to come in, and I'll save you from the fire? So he said, yes, (laughs) please. That is what I like. But he then phoned up John, saying, this is what's happened to me in my dream. I need to come and talk to you. And they prayed about it, and he found a relationship with Jesus uh, for himself. Interestingly, he said to John, he said, your arguments were always rubbish, but your friendship and your love touched me deeply. Um, People have continued to meet Jesus ever since Easter Day. It's not stopped. Today, around the world, people will meet Jesus, because he's not dead, he's alive. After the first disciples met the risen Jesus, they gradually came to realize that he had indeed been cursed, but that that wasn't a curse that he deserved for himself. The way it all made sense was that he had become a curse for the sake of others. It says in Galatians 3 and verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So instead of this horrid death that he died, implying that he was weak, we now understand that it showed his love. He died for us. Romans 5, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though a good, for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. This is a new reality, a reality that reality was changed, spiritual reality, that what is possible for us was changed because of the events of that weekend. So a new reality has been opened up to us, and that brings with it new opportunity. I have the next slide. There's a new opportunity that comes. We've looked at Easter morning. On Easter morning, there is news of a new reality. Easter afternoon, come the afternoon, we find another story in Luke 24. That same day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? So they they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and don't know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we'd hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. And in addition... Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning and they didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd, they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him, they didn't see. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This new opportunity that we have because of Easter, this new opportunity is to walk with Jesus. While Jesus was alive, his time was spent primarily with the 12 that he'd drawn close to him in one place. But now that Jesus has risen from the dead, he comes to us no longer confined to a small group of friends and no longer confined to one place. I'm going to watch a video 
which is actually also from the Middle East, as it happens, and which is the story of someone else finding that Jesus had come some distance from Jerusalem to meet with him. It's a story from Tehran in the 1970s, a true story, and the man whose story it was was narrating it there. And what had happened for him was that one day he was just walking by to work, probably struggling with depression, with all kinds of unresolved anger. And he heard, as he walked past a a Syrian Orthodox church, uh, he felt a voice calling him to go in. He went in, there was no one there, apart from an old woman who was a Muslim and really discouraged him from coming back. She was there as the cleaner. And uh, yet he went back on the Sunday, found there a congregation, and the pastor, was just going on to further story there, that pastor gave him a New Testament, which he read, and read again, and read again, and read again. And in all of his reading, he had no kind of encounter of that dramatic kind. He just kept reading. And that brought him to this day, where one day he was just fed up and threw the New Testament away, at which point Jesus came to him and made it known that he was alive. Both that Islamist friend of John's I spoke about earlier and this guy, Khosrow, who found Jesus, they'd been journeying actually for a while before it was revealed to them that Jesus had been with them. They'd been reading the scriptures. They'd been engaging in trying to find out more about the living God. And then they had their moment, like just like these disciples on the road to Emmaus. They'd been walking with him for some time. They'd been searching the scriptures together. And then there came a moment when their eyes were opened and they realized who it was who'd been walking with them all along. The New Testament says that those who seek will find. And so I want to just speak a simple word to those of you this morning that are seeking more of God. And I want to encourage you to keep walking, to keep seeking until your heart burns. Or until your eyes are opened to see that actually something has been burning all along. If you've got any questions about any of this, then one of the things that we do as a church is run the Alpha Course, which gives plenty of opportunity for people to explore those questions and just to keep walking in an exploration of what Jesus has said and done and its significance for us, what it means to us. And you can do that. You can find out about that. If you, at the back there, there is a couple of banners and our welcome team will be there at the back at the end of the meeting. They will be delighted to tell you when that's happening so that you can join in. The story goes on. In Luke chapter 24, verse 36, it says, While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. In one of the other Gospels, this is explained in a little bit more detail. It says in John chapter 20 and verse 19 that on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, that's his wounds. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, 
he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. And just want to draw out a a simple point, which picks up what Helen was sharing earlier. You know, the disciples had the doors locked out of fear. They were afraid of what would happen to them. They were not at peace. They were anxious. If they looked inside themselves in search of peace, they didn't find it there. What they tried to do was to gain peace by controlling their environment. We're tempted to do that too, I believe. When we lack peace inside our hearts and minds, when we're anxious, one of the strategies that we follow is to find a tranquil place in the hope that some of its serenity will get inside of us. And there are places that are a genuine blessing to us, where there is tranquility and it does do us good. But here, Jesus does something far stronger and far better. Instead of helping them to find a place of peace or helping them to discover the peace that was always truly within them, because actually that wasn't there to be found, he came and gave them his peace. He breathed on them, and so something that was outside of them came inside. That which they had not had inside was granted to them as they received the Holy Spirit. As I was praying ahead of this morning, I um, felt my attention drawn to this and was reminded of that video that we've seen of someone who was locked up. If we're thinking about eggs this morning, maybe we should remember the words that Kosrov had there about uh, his, he was like a shell. And it wasn't such a positive shell. He was hidden inside and there was something more of God's new life for him to break him out from that shell. And I just um, think there's something in what Helen was sharing earlier about not just standing at a distance, not remaining contained, but coming close and in coming close, Jesus coming close, putting his new life inside of us that will break the shell. I think there will be a few people this morning for whom those words speak actually quite powerfully. You have felt yourself not only to be isolated, but to be stuck in your isolation. And there's a promise this morning of the Spirit coming to you to break you out and set you free. So, Keith, um, we ought to respond in some way to the glory of Easter Day and to the few things that I've looked at from it this morning. I'll leave it with you.